Father, we thank you for gathering us together this morning so that we can lift up your name as a congregation, Father. Um, Lord, you have purposed for our lives as believers to be lived out um, in fellowship with one another. Um, you have not called us to walk on our own as believers. Lord, you know that uh, we need to be encouraged in our faith. Lord, that we don't um, have the resources in and of ourselves to sustain our own faith. We need you to sustain our faith. And part of how you do that is by causing our brothers and our sisters around us to encourage us in our faith. And Lord, you desire um, for your people to gather to praise you with one voice, not to be scattered around um, weakly praising you with just one voice, but you want us to join our voices and lift up our voices together so that we may exalt you and, and make a great shout together for you and proclaim who you are. And Lord, um, we need your word. We need uh, your spirit to work through your word to, to build us up in our faith um, so that more and more we can mean the words that we sing and that we can be more faithful proclaimers to others of who you are. And Lord, when we go out from this building, help us not to keep the gospel truth to ourselves. Lord, help us to look for opportunities to, to proclaim that truth to others. Lord, we have children in our homes who need to hear the gospel. We have family members, um, extended family who need to hear the gospel. We have neighbors and co-workers. Lord, you have placed each one of us where we are um, we have a mission field right where we are, Lord. Help us to open our eyes and see that and seek your face for equipping us, Lord, to, to make the most of the opportunities you've given us. And may you equip us this morning to that end, we pray, as we look at your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. So you can open to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 19 to 23, and as I said last week, this was a two-parter message. The first part uh, was last week, so if you want to get caught up on that, you can go to the website and listen to the message there. Um, but we're looking at the second part of the message this morning, verses 19 to 23. And I'll read those verses for us again. We already read them in our call to worship, but let's hear it again. Chapter 9, verse 19, Paul writes, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Last week I posed to all of us the question, what is your greatest passion in life? And this chapter has showed us that Paul, for him, the answer to that question was the gospel, the good news concerning Jesus Christ. 
and what he did to save sinners. In chapter 9, Paul has been giving us an example to follow. And this example is not for the super spiritual. It's not exclusively for pastors or missionaries or parachurch ministry leaders. This example is for normal, everyday Christians. The Corinthians were those kinds of Christians, normal, everyday believers who were falling short of living their lives in a gospel-centered, Christ-centered, others-focused way. They were focused on themselves. And that self-focus was evidenced by their loveless behavior toward others. Their loveless behavior toward their brothers and sisters who were weaker in the faith than they were. Brothers and sisters who were not yet fully established in their faith. These believers, these, these knowledgeable Corinthians were loving themselves more than they were loving God, more than they were loving their neighbor. So in chapter 9, Paul is showing these believers how he himself is their example. He has been denying himself for the sake of strengthening those weaker believers, those believers that the Corinthians were overlooking. And he's explaining how he himself has done this so that these knowledgeable Corinthians might begin to walk in his footsteps, might follow his example. At the end of chapter 8, in verse 13, after he had exhorted these believers to be careful not to become a stumbling block to other believers by dining in idol temples, Paul claimed that he would willingly never eat meat again if it meant helping a weaker brother or sister not stumble back into idolatry. And in chapter 9, though, as I said last week, though we've begun a new chapter, we've not begun a new topic. Paul is still talking about the same thing. He's addressing this issue of the Corinthians' loveless oversight of their weaker brothers and sisters. And in this chapter, Paul is helping these Corinthians understand why he himself would be willing to do something so inconvenient as never eat meat again if that would help brothers and sisters persevere. And he's calling these believers to that same willingness. Last week we saw in verse 1 of chapter 9 how Paul began by asking two questions. The first question he asked in verse 1 was, Am I not free? Am I not free? And coming on the heels of chapter 8, verse 13, what Paul likely meant by that was, am I not free to eat whatever I like? Yes, Paul was free to eat whatever he liked because as a Christian, he was no longer bound to the dietary laws of the old covenant. The second question that Paul asked was, am I not an apostle? And the answer to that was obvious. Yes, Paul was an apostle and being an apostle entitled him to certain rights. And these two issues, his freedom and his apostolic authority, Paul is using these two issues to highlight what he could be gaining for himself, but which he is actually denying himself for the sake of others, that they might hear the gospel, that they might be strengthened in the gospel. The Corinthians, along with you and me, so often act contrary to that. We use our freedom, we use our rights to serve ourselves. In verses 1 through 18, we saw how Paul spoke of his authority as an apostle 
and the specific ways he laid down that authority. He laid down certain aspects of his rights as an apostle in order that he might better serve others for the sake of the gospel. And now, in the passage of Scripture that we're looking at, verses 19 to 13, Paul is going to show us how he has laid down his freedom for the sake of the gospel. So last week we saw how he laid down his rights as an apostle. Here, this week, we're going to see how he lays down his freedom for the sake of bringing the gospel to others. Again, remember that first question he asked in verse 1, am I not free? He picks up that issue again in verse 19, which is our first verse that we're looking at. In verse 19, Paul picks that issue up and he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. So like every believer in Christ, Paul was free. Paul had freedom in Christ, but Paul was using that freedom to enslave himself to others in order that he might serve them the gospel. That's how he was using his freedom. And Paul gets specific about this. He helps us understand what he meant by becoming a slave to others. What did he mean by that? He explains in verses 20 through 21. He says to the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. The Jews were those under the law. Verse 21, to those who are without law, that's Gentiles, to those who are without law, I became as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. So let's unpack that a little bit, those two verses. If you read that fast, it's hard to understand what he's talking about. So, but if you go slow, you can follow his train of thought. So let's try to follow what he's saying here. Paul says, to the Jews I became as a Jew. To the Gentiles I became as a Gentile. Or those without law, I became like someone who was without law so that I might be with them, interact with them, bring the gospel to them. Whoever Paul came across, he would try to get down on their level so that he could gain a hearing with them and winsomely and compellingly proclaim the gospel to them. So when, when speaking with Jews, Paul didn't throw pork in their face. If you were a Jew, Orthodox Jew, it was forbidden in the dietary laws of the Old Covenant to not eat of swine flesh. So Paul wouldn't invite them over to have a ham dinner with him because that would totally negate his ability to share the gospel with them. He wouldn't do that. He didn't expect Jews that he was ministering to to get over their attachment to religious ceremony before he would preach Christ to them. So he accommodated himself to their hang-ups so that he could have that opportunity to preach Christ to them. At times, he would deny himself certain freedoms that he had in Christ. He would lay those things down, maybe eaten certain things, so that he could have that opportunity to speak with Jews. 
We see that in the book of Acts. There's times when Paul submits himself to certain ceremonial aspects of the law for the sake of not unnecessarily offending the Jews. On the other hand, when speaking to Gentiles, those without law, those without the Mosaic law, Paul did not expect the non-Jews to know everything that was in the Old Testament before he proclaimed Christ to them. I think we see this most clearly in, in how Paul evangelized. And we have numerous examples in the book of Acts. And I want us to turn there so that we can actually see how Paul did this. How did he accommodate himself to Jews when speaking to Jews and to Gentiles when speaking to Gentiles? So let's, let's look at Acts chapter 13. And in this chapter, Paul is evangelizing Jews. He's evangelizing those under the law. Acts chapter 13, and starting in verse 14, we see that Paul went on from Perga and arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. That was Paul's practice. He'd always go to the synagogue first whenever he got to a, a city. After the reading of the law, verse 15, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them, from, or led them out from it. So do you see what Paul is doing there? Where is he starting with these Israelites, these Jews? He's speaking of their history, something they're familiar with, something they already agree on. He is beginning there in his address to these Jews. And he goes on describing this history of their common people through verses, uh, verses 17 through 22. And when he gets to verse 22, he brings in King David. After God had removed Saul... God raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Then look at what he says in verse 13. From the descendants or the seed of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. So Paul goes through their history what they're familiar with, what they already agree on. And he gets to David, and there's, there's a signpost with David because God made promises to David that was concerning the Messiah. And so when Paul talks them up to David, he finds there a launching point to bring in Jesus Christ to preach to these Jews. So he has become as a Jew. He's, he's identifying with the history of his people in order that he may gain a hearing with them to proclaim Christ to them. If you go to chapter 17, we see Paul doing the same thing. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. 
And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. That's the Old Testament. Reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. Verse 3 says he was explaining and giving evidence. What do you think the evidence was that Paul was giving? He was pointing to the Old Testament scriptures and saying, look, this is what the Word of God says concerning the Messiah. And then he would point to Jesus and say, this is how Jesus fulfilled what the Old Testament was saying. That's the evidence that he was giving. So again, he's, he's going from a point of commonality they have in the accepting of the Old Testament as, as the Word of God, and he goes from there and proclaims the gospel. That's Paul's evangelizing Jews. Now, what about the Gentiles? How did Paul approach it when he preached the gospel to the Gentiles? Well, you'll find that usually he did not rehearse the history of Israel when he was speaking with non-Jews. Go back a couple pages to chapter 14, Acts chapter 14. Verse 8, we find Paul and Barnabas at Lystra, and they heal a man who was lame. And the, the Gentiles who see this miracle, they totally misinterpret it because in verse 12, they start calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. And they say, the gods have come down here. That's what they think has happened, how this lame man got healed. And they start to bring sacrifices to offer sacrifices to Barnabas and Paul. And that horrifies Paul and Barnabas and they rush out and try to make them stop. And look at what they say when they try to make them stop. In verse 15, they say, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Do you see where Paul begins there? When speaking to these Gentiles, he's beginning with the truth of God as creator. And the scriptures he's going to are scriptures that speak of God as the creator. He's quoting there at the end of verse 15 from, let me see here, Exodus 20, verse 11. So this is the truth, or at least that seems to be where he's quoting from. But it's from the Old Testament, and that's the truth he's bringing to bear upon these Gentiles. And then he goes on in verses 16 through 18 to speak of how God formed the nations and how God has testified to those pagan nations of himself by providing them with food and gladness. So these are the things that Paul is bringing up with these Gentiles. It's different from what he said to the Jews. There's a different starting point he took with these Gentiles, and yet he's leading to the same gospel. Just a different starting point to get there. Uh, next, one more. Let's go to Acts 17. And verse 16. 17, verse 16. 
Now, while Paul was waiting for his companions at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. And what Paul was preaching was something new, and they wanted to fill up their brains and and hear this new teaching. So they invite Paul. Verse 22, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, now notice where Paul starts in speaking with these Gentiles. Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath in all things." And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead." So you see Paul's approach when he spoke with Gentiles. When he was speaking with non-Jews, he would first start with creation, God being the maker of heaven and earth. And he would bring conviction to these hearers by reminding them that they as God's creatures are accountable to God and that God will one day judge the nations and the one through whom he will judge the nations is the man he rose from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. He started with what they were familiar with. Now you might say, well, these are pagans. They worshipped Greek gods and goddesses. How are they familiar with the fact that God is one God, maker of heaven and earth? Well, if you went back to Romans 1, verse 18, what does that say? It says that all men know that there is a creator and that they are accountable to that creator. Paul is taking that for granted, and that's where he's starting with these non-Jews. So you see how he accommodates himself to his audience. He didn't hold the Gentiles at arm's length. He wouldn't refuse to sit down and eat with them in order to stay kosher. 
The gospel that Paul preached was the same gospel, whether he was speaking to Jews or to Gentiles, but depending on who he was speaking with, Paul took into account what his audience already knew to be true or what they were familiar with, and he would start there and take them step by step, leading them to Jesus Christ. Now, back in 1 Corinthians 9, keep your finger in Acts because we have one more spot to go there. But when Paul says, to the Jews I became as a Jew, to those without law I became as without law, if Paul didn't qualify that, we might think that he might um, compromise his stand on the truth or compromise his lifestyle for the sake of reaching the lost. And sometimes we can take that approach when we're sitting with our coworkers around the lunch table and someone says a dirty joke and we feel like we have to laugh in order to get our coworkers to like us so that we can have that open door to preach the gospel. That's not what Paul was doing when he became a Jew to Jews or when he became a Gentile to Gentiles. That's not what he was doing. When Paul sought to accommodate himself to whoever he was speaking to, that does not mean that he ever compromised the gospel, nor did he ever compromise his own walk with Christ. When speaking with Jews, Paul never wavered on the fact that a man is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He never added to that by saying, oh, you've got to get circumcised too, because I know the Jews would want to hear that. That's why I look at verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 9. That's why he says, To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win the Jews. To those under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law. You see, Paul didn't change his understanding of the gospel in order to try to reach the Jews. He didn't, he didn't compromise his own standing in Christ for the sake of reaching others. That's not what he was changing about himself. When speaking with Gentiles, Paul never took part in their sinful lifestyles in order to try and gain a hearing with them. Look at verse 21. He says, To those who are without law, I became as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So he would become as one without law only so far because he still knew that he was accountable to the God that he was serving. He was still bound to live for Christ as he sought to tell others about Christ. So he never took part in sin. That's not what he means when he says, I became like a Gentile to reach the Gentiles. He simply means that he was going as far as he could to reach them, to bring the gospel to them, getting down on their level. It's like you as a parent evangelizing your children. Your children are not going to understand big, weighty theological terms. You have to get down on their level, take into account where they're at in their understanding, their ability to comprehend things, and you have to package the gospel in those terms in order to preach it to your own kids. You don't stand there and just rattle off a bunch of big words that they have no idea what you're talking about. To your children, you become like a child so that you can speak to them and bring them the gospel in that way. When we share the gospel with others, are we just trying to check a box off of a list, like a to-do list, 
that we have from God. And we just want to check the box off to salve our consciences. And we don't really care whether or not the person we're talking to understands anything we're saying. We're just trying to, this is what God wants me to do. I just got to do it. I don't really care what the person I'm talking to does with it. I just want to get this guilt off my back and do this. Is that what we do? Or do we really love the person we're speaking with? Because if we really love and desire the salvation of the person we're speaking with, we will pay close attention to what they're capable of understanding, what they're familiar with, and we'll start there and take them by the hand and lead them from there to Christ. A great example of this is in Acts chapter 8 with Philip as he evangelizes an Ethiopian eunuch. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. It says, But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, this is a Gentile, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So he was a God-fearer. He was a Gentile, but he believed in the God of Israel. Verse 28, And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. So Philip is observing this because he's looking for an opportunity to preach the gospel to this man. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? Verse 31, the Ethiopian said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? That's what the unbeliever needs. That's what we as believers can give, uh, be a guide to take them from where they are and to take them by the hand as a man with sight leads a blind man and lead him to the Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation, for his life is removed from the earth? The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. You see where he started? He didn't say, oh, forget that, let's start over here. No, he, he took what the Ethiopian was looking at and he started there and he preached Jesus from there. He began where the Ethiopian was in order that he might bring him to where Jesus is. And that's what we have to do when we're talking with unbelievers, whether it's our kids or our neighbor or our co-worker, whoever it is. Back in 1 Corinthians 9, in verse 22, Paul brings things full circle to what he was talking about in chapter 8. Because look at what he says. He says, to the weak. Has Paul been talking about the weak before this? 
Yeah, he was talking about the weak that the Corinthians were overlooking back in chapter 8. He says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. The word to win. In verses 20 to 21, obviously that meant to bring someone to faith. To win someone was to bring them to faith. But the weak that we saw back up in chapter 8, they were already believers. So why does Paul say that I might win them? Well, win can also have the meaning of to help someone stay in the faith. Not just bring them to the faith, but help them stay in the faith. For example, Matthew 18. You don't have to turn there. I can just read it to you. But Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, and verse 15, we see this word used in this way. There Jesus instructs us, if your brother sins, your brother, this is a fellow believer, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. You have won your brother. Same word. Paul says, to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. The Corinthian believers had overlooked the weak in their midst. And Paul, for the sake of winning those weak believers, that is, for the sake of helping them to remain faithful, he would willingly become weak. If eating meat would cause them to stumble, he'd give up eating meat for the sake of helping them continue on in the faith. Even if it meant inconveniencing himself, even if it meant denying himself certain freedoms, Paul didn't care what it cost himself. He only cared about winning the loss to Christ and winning struggling brothers and sisters to a more steadfast faith in Christ. And we need to ask ourselves, Are we willing to inconvenience ourselves for the sake of struggling brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we willing to deny ourselves certain freedoms if it would mean protecting the conscience and the faith of a newborn Christian, someone who's just come to the faith? When you have a baby, when you and your spouse have an infant child, does your life change at all? Yeah, it changes drastically. That hit home the first night in the hospital with Isaac. You mean I don't get to sleep anymore? Your life changes totally. No longer are you able to do all of the things you used to enjoy doing. No, for the sake of taking care of that newborn, what do you do? You deny yourself certain freedoms for the sake of taking care of that newborn child. A parent who's not willing to deny him or herself for the sake of their child is guilty of neglect. Are we as believers guilty of neglecting the infant Christians among us or the struggling Christians? Do we show up? Are we there for them when they need us? Or do we just leave them on their own, like a parent leaving its child out on the doorstep to die? Verse 23, 
Paul says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. If you had to sum Paul up in one word, the one word would be gospel. The gospel is the good news concerning God's Son, Jesus Christ. What is that good news? Well, the bad news is that we are sinners. We have offended our Maker. We have transgressed His law. We are criminals in His eyes. And the punishment that the Scriptures tell us that He is going to mete out to all sinners is eternity in hell. That is the worst news you could ever receive. But the good news is this, that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to become a man and to live a righteous life in our place so that that righteousness could be credited to our account if we would put our faith and trust in him. And not only did he live a righteous life in our place, but he went to the cross where he bore the sins of his people on his own shoulders so that the wrath of God would fall on him instead of on his people who would trust in him. And the good news is that he rose from the dead proving that what he did was enough to save forever anyone who would turn from their sins and put their trust in him as their Lord and Savior. That's the good news. And everything Paul did in his life was done with the express purpose of getting that good news to as many people as he possibly could and doing it as effectively as he possibly could. Whatever might hinder Paul from doing that, whether it was exercising his rights as an apostle or exercising his freedoms to eat certain things, whatever it might be, Paul was willing to deny himself the enjoyment of that so that he might get the greater enjoyment of bringing the gospel to those people. Do we do that? Are we willing to become all things to all men so that we may, by all means, save some? Are we willing to do all things for the sake of the gospel? Verse 23 tells us that Paul went all out for the gospel so that he may become a fellow partaker of that gospel. Become a fellow partaker of it. The commentator Charles Hodge said this about that last phrase, become a fellow partaker of it. He said, quote, to be a partaker of the gospel means, of course, to be a partaker of its benefits, to be the subject of the redemption which it announces. It is necessary to live for the gospel in order to be a partaker of the gospel, unquote. Let me say that last line again. It's necessary to live for the gospel in order to be a partaker of of the gospel. Paul is telling us here that in order to be saved by the gospel, you must continue in that gospel. You must orient your entire life to that gospel. And orienting your entire life to that gospel, it will result in you sharing that gospel with others. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul wrote, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. If you detach yourself 
from the gospel. You detach yourself from the power of God for your salvation. Now, I'm not saying you have to share the gospel in order to earn salvation. That's not what I'm saying. But you have to realize the good news is the good news. And you don't just take that and set it aside and expect for that good news to still save you if you don't believe it anymore, if you don't attach your life to that gospel. The gospel is not an add-on. Jesus is not an accessory to your life. You either sell out for the gospel or you sell your soul to the devil. You either lay down your life to lay hold of Jesus Christ or you reject Christ in order to hang on to your life in this world. There is no fence for you and me to sit on. It's one or the other. And Paul had made his choice. Christ is it for Paul. The gospel. I believe in the gospel. I surrender my life to the gospel, to Jesus Christ. Lord, take my life and do with it whatever you want. And what Jesus wanted Paul to do with his life was to proclaim that same gospel to others. Have we made that choice? Chapter 9 has been an overwhelming passage. Paul is giving us an example to follow here. What Paul has been describing is not for super-Christians. It's for Christians, period. This is a three-chapter section. Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. And at the end of this three-chapter section, in chapter 11, verse 1, which should actually be the last verse of chapter 10, but chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. That's how he ends this three-chapter-long section. He said, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Why did Paul live the way he lived in chapter 9? Paul lived like he did because of who he was following. That's why he lived that way. Because Christ had lived that way before him, and he was following in the footsteps of Christ. What Paul has been describing in this chapter, is that not what our Lord Jesus has done for us? Did he not deny himself the full exercise of his rights as God Almighty? Did he not deny himself the freedom of, of not suffering by becoming a man to die in our place? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Hebrews 2, 17 through 18 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, 
that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation or to make satisfaction for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Paul was following Jesus. That's why he lived the way he lived in verse nine, or chapter 9. If you and I are following Jesus, because we see in him our salvation, we see in him our all in all as we sung, we see in him as the only one worthy to rule us, the only one able to save us by his righteous life, not because of anything we have done, but because of what he has done. If we embrace him, it means following him, and following him will mean living like him. If we are truly following Jesus, we will be living more and more like Jesus, which means denying ourselves for the sake of bringing the lost to Christ and for the sake of helping those who have been found by Christ, helping them to keep clinging to Christ. This is the example that our Lord has set and that Paul is reminding us of, the example that we are to walk in if we are a believer in the Lord Jesus. So let's pray.